Hello and welcome to the History of Modern Greece. I'm your host, Daniel Roberts, and I'm here with my father, George, and our theme music is brought to you by Mark Youngerman. This is a podcast that covers the events from the fall of ancient Greece to the modern day. This is episode 20, The Wars of the Diadochi. Antigonus went around his empire, eliminating anyone he couldn't trust, starting with the execution of Yemenes, and continuous so many more. He killed the captain of the Silver Shields and had the entire unit sent to the mountains to fight off barbarians and killed the satraps who had sided with Yemenes. After purging so many offices in Asia, Antigonus made his way to Babylon, which was governed by a man named Seleucus. Seleucus was a great general who fought personally with Alexander in many battles and was highly respected in the empire. After getting into an argument with Antigonus, he fled the city of Babylon, fearing that he was going to be purged like the others. He jumped on his horse and marched west through the desert to his friend Ptolemy, governor of Egypt. With Seleucus safe in Egypt, Ptolemy started reaching out to his fellow governors, and they all agreed that Antigonus had gone too far and needed to be stopped. In 314 BCE, a coalition started to grow against Antigonus. The governors of Thrace, Macedonia, Malia, and Egypt all opposed him and started moving their armies into Anatolia. Now at this point, I should note, Thrace, Macedonia, and Miletus, they're all up in the north near Greece and Turkey. Egypt is the only one down in Africa, so they're separated. Everyone knew that an all-out war was inevitable. So Antigonus started out by invading the Phoenician cities, forcing them to build him his own mighty navy. Until now, Ptolemy had naval superiority, and if Antigonus wanted to win this war, he was going to have to build his own navy. Now, with his new ships, Antigonus sent an army to the Peloponnese to aid in the fight against Cassander. He also sent his son on an expedition north to fight in Anatolia. Meanwhile, he marched an army south and conquered the cities of Joppa and Gaza, and laid siege to the city of Tyre. With all the commotion in the southern cities of Joppa and Tyre, the Ptolemaic navy that patrolled the southern seas never saw Antigonus' navy. And with Antigonus' new navy ready for war, in the summer of that year, he sent them on campaign to Anatolia to crush the rebels in Miletus. In 313 BCE, Ptolemy led a raid across the Mediterranean Sea to the city of Corinda, They raided the countryside and seized all of the gold they could find and returned to Egypt. There was nothing Antigonus or his son Demetrius could do about it. Antigonus was fighting in Anatolia, and Demetrius was left with a large army to defend the new Judean cities added to their holdings. But Ptolemy was emboldened to try another attack after such a successful raid in the summer. While he was back in Egypt, he planned an invasion by land to retake the Phoenician cities of Gaza and Joppa. In 312 BCE, Ptolemy marched his army across the desert to the city of Gaza. He knew he had good chances of winning this siege because Antigonus and his army was all the way in Anatolia. Demetrius was waiting for him with his own army. Strategy has changed a little as Demetrius placed all of his strongest cavalry, including himself and 30 war elephants, on his left flank. This wasn't a new strategy, but it still went against tradition of placing his strongest and most skilled warriors on the honorable right. Ptolemy also placed himself and his strongest forces on the left flank. 
and may have thought he was clever doing so. But as soon as he saw Demetrius had done the same thing, he rearranged his battle formation so his strongest were now on the right and ready to charge Demetrius' strongest men. Ptolemy also had a secret defense against the war elephants. Soldiers equipped with large metal spikes that would skewer the elephants during a charge. They were also surrounded by archers who would take out the elephant riders. When the battle started, Demetrius led a cavalry charge, riding past the war elephants and into the battlefield. The cavalry charge did nothing other than allow thousands of men to cut each other down in the field between the two armies. Many people died on both sides, and this was a battle that both Ptolemy and Demetrius were participating in. However, neither side could kill the leaders of the other side, and they were forced to order the two lines to march forward and fight. The war elephants were the first to charge across the battlefield, and at first it looked like they were going to charge right through Ptolemy's phalanx. Unfortunately for the war elephants, Ptolemy's engineers and archers marched to the front of the phalanx and peppered the elephants with a thousand arrows and javelins. It was a hailstorm of wood and iron flying through the air. This killed most of the elephant riders, forcing them into a desperate charge forward to wipe out the enemy archers. But as the elephants charged, the archers melted away, and the engineers with their iron spikes created a special phalanx designed to kill war elephants. The elephants charged right into the thousand iron spikes skewered most of them and toppling the riders, who were cut to pieces or shot full of arrows. When Demetrius' army watched their entire group of war elephants die on the phalanx before a single infantry soldier made it across the battlefield, panic spread throughout Demetrius' army. Demetrius saw that the battle was over and ordered an organized retreat trying his hardest to keep his army in formation. But too many men were spooked from the slaughter of elephants and decided an unorganized scattered would be best. This meant that tens of thousands of infantrymen were easily surrounded by Ptolemy's cavalry and either killed or captured. This was a crushing blow to Demetrius and his father Antigonus. Ptolemy took control of Gaza and marched his army right up the Judean coast, taking control of many Phoenician cities along the way. Right when Ptolemy was on a winning streak, he made a critical error. He assumed that Demetrius was fatally wounded and only needed to be put down. So he sent a small unit north to wipe out Demetrius. This was careless. And Demetrius ended up ambushing the small army and capturing all of their gold and over 7,000 infantry units. Around the same time, Antigonus returned from his campaign in western Anatolia successfully crushing the alliance of Miletus and Sardis. Now Antigonus and his son Demetrius were reunited in Anatolia and ready to take on Ptolemy. By 311 BCE, Antigonus and Demetrius marched their combined army south and recaptured every single city taken by Ptolemy, including Gaza, which left them right where they were a year before. Only now 80,000 soldiers from Antigonus' army were on the border with Egypt, and here they were bogged down with fighting between both Ptolemy and an Arab kingdom of Petra. And there were several sieges that did nothing to change the outcome one way or another for the war other than cost, lives, and money. And finally, word reached Antigonus. Seleucus had snuck out of Egypt and into Babylon with a small army and managed to take over the capital of the empire. This was devastating news to Antigonus and forced him to postpone any plans he had to take over Egypt from Ptolemy so he could focus his efforts at the heart of the Persian Empire. 
Antigonus was forced to make peace with his rivals in Thrace, Macedonia, and even Egypt. And after these peace talks, Cassander, the governor of Macedonia, ordered the execution of Alexander IV and his mother Roxana, ending the bloodline of Philip and Alexander the Great, but also ending any chance at reuniting the empire of Alexander. Without an heir to the throne, the regency was over, and no one had any more claim to the empire than the next. In 310 BCE, Demetrius arrived in Babylon with a powerful army, ready to take their capital back from Seleucus. Because Babylon was mostly evacuated, Demetrius had no trouble taking the city. However, there was some resistance in a large temple that had lots of food and had locked the gates, forcing Demetrius to leave over 6,000 troops to guard the citadel. Demetrius was recalled to his father in Syria, but after several years, Antigonus was forced to march on Babylon himself to face Seleucus himself in battle. In 308 BCE, a battle between Seleucus and Antigonus was fought, and there is very little information about this battle other than the fact that it was fought. It was in 308 BCE, and Seleucus was the victor, forcing Antigonus to sign a humiliating peace treaty and march on out of there. With this defeat, Antigonus lost all control over the eastern provinces and was forced to march west to his territory in Anatolia and Syria. All the while, Ptolemy was secretly sending raiding parties across the sea to take control of the land in southern Anatolia and the Peloponnese, further undermining the peace treaty between the Diadochi. In 307 BCE, Demetrius sailed across the Aegean and retook the Peloponnese from Ptolemy. This short-lived victory was not going to last long. It is quite clear at this point that the empire was lost and now it was bitter rivalry between Greek generals in a hit-and-run tactic. No one really had the ability to hold on to the territory won, because they weren't able to be everywhere at once. Every battle meant they were losing more lives, and the tactics were no longer revolutionary since everybody knew them. The generals of their own provinces started to get locked into their own territory. In 306 BCE, Ptolemy landed his army on the island of Cyprus, taking the prized island from Antigonus and forcing Demetrius across the Aegean to Anatolia, where he picked up reinforcements from his father's army. With his full naval power and his replenished army, he sailed back to Cyprus and landed his army on the coast. And there he was able to conquer several small towns, but his main target was the city of Salamis. Now Salamis was a walled city, with a lot of defenses. But for some reason the defender, who happened to be Ptolemy's brother, Menelaus, met his enemy on the open battlefield outside of the city walls. The battle started quickly. Demetrius's men gained the upper hand almost immediately, and after killing over a thousand of Menelaus's men and forcing his army back to take shelter behind the city walls, the siege of Salamis began. Now, because Demetrius had a lot of experience in siege warfare, he had with him battering rams and catapults. And this wasn't unheard of, but was fantastic technology that really helped in either tearing down the walls, or at the very least, terrorizing the people who lived inside. Demetrius's fleet surrounded the ports and blocked every vessel from escaping downriver. They were trapped, and sooner or later, Demetrius was going to crack the shell. Immediately, Demetrius gave the order to construct 
the largest siege tower ever created. It was a tower over nine stories tall, and it had wheels. And when he finally attacked, Demetrius destroyed a portion of the city walls. Instead of pursuing through the walls, Demetrius ordered his men camp for the night and prepare for the rape and pillage before dawn. In the middle of the night, Menelaus sent a special task force to sneak into Demetrius' camp and set fire to the siege tower and catapults. And the plan went down without a hitch. There was a little bit of time on Menelaus' side, and he sent a messenger to his brother Ptolemy, pleading for help. And Ptolemy received the message, and sent a fleet of ships and an army to the southern coast of the island. They gathered more ships as they sailed past cities loyal to Ptolemy, and when they arrived at the southern shores near Salamis, they sent word to Menelaus that Ptolemy was here with hundreds of ships. And when the two navies met in the sea, they formed up into a long line, just like the armies do in land battles, almost as if they are using the exact same strategy. When Demetrius's fleet left the port to engage their enemy, they made sure to load all of their catapults and siege engines onto the ships. Now this was something brand new for naval warfare. The wooden ships were now able to fire upon one another before they had to crash into each other and board each other and fight hand-to-hand combat. Demetrius's strongest ships were the ones equipped with the siege engines. And when they engaged the enemy, they destroyed them almost instantly. Having broken through the right flank of Ptolemy's navy, they were now lined up on the vulnerable sides of the ships. Demetrius destroyed ship after ship as he attacked them from the side, hitting them with projectiles the entire time. The only part of Ptolemy's navy that did well was the left flank, where Ptolemy was stationed. There they charged right through the enemy ships, sinking several of them and advancing towards the river. And that had all of Menelaus' navy trapped by a few ships. Ptolemy's ships on the left flank successfully freed Menelaus' ships from the river. But as soon as they saw that their entire middle and right flank were destroyed, the general retreat was given. Ptolemy fled the battle, and even fled the island of Cyprus. Ptolemy had lost this battle and returned to his province of Egypt. Antigonus claimed the throne to Alexander's empire as his own and declared his son Demetrius as his lawful heir to the empire. He was declaring his family line, the Antigonids, to be the true heirs of Alexander's empire. Now this was not received well by any other general or governor. And very quickly, they all started making the same claim to the throne. At this time in the narrative, Antigonus had the superior military force, and he decided that now was the time to strike Ptolemy and take the province of Egypt. Now, the entire land army of over 90,000 infantry were marching south along the Mediterranean Sea, sailing from Cyprus. Demetrius accompanied his father and his army. Together, the two military powers traveled south towards Egypt. They marched through Gaza and across a hot desert, only to get stopped at the easternmost branch of the Nile, where Ptolemy's army laid entrenched along the riverbed. There would be no crossing the crocodile-infested waters and getting past the phalanx. Demetrius tried to sail the army around the coast and land closer to Alexandria, but the invasion was fought off by Ptolemy's phalanx. Realizing there was no way to successfully cross the Nile without losing most or all of his men, he ordered a retreat. 
and the invasion was officially abandoned. Now, this was a very wise move. Because only 15 years before, Perdiccas got to this exact position, and instead of choosing to abandon, he had chose to attack, and he did lose everything. And his men ended up murdering him for it. In 305 BCE, Demetrius led a naval invasion of the small island of Rhodes, just off the southwest coast of Anatolia. Antigonus, now 80 years old, stayed at home. Rhodes was allied with Ptolemy and had a significant naval force, and it was Demetrius' plan to take them out and grant absolute naval superiority to the Antigonids. Hundreds of warships loaded with 40,000 soldiers and siege equipment landed on the island of Rhodes, just outside of the city walls. Most of the fighting during the siege took place outside of the harbor. Demetrius built large wooden platforms and placed them over top of his cargo ships. He put catapults and four-story siege towers on top of these platforms. He also filled all of his ships with archers with fire arrows. There were several attacks over a few days where Demetrius would drag his ships into the harbor and thousands of fire arrows started shooting through the air while the catapults hurled giant boulders across the harbor and into the city walls. Some of these pitched battles were fought at night, and the sky would be filled with fire arrows and the ships in the harbor in flames, while giant boulders flew through the air and crashed into the boats and city walls. Despite all of this, the Rhodesians were able to repel all of the attacks and prevent Demetrius from taking the harbor. My name is Koji. And I'm Michelle. And this is the Japanese America podcast. So this is where we look at all things Japanese American. We will bring alive the history, culture, and people that make up this diverse community. In this month's episode, we'll examine Koji's unique family history. To help bring this story alive, we brought on actor and comedian Derek Mio. He was reported to be extremely pro-Japanese and anti-American in sentiment. Her husband was taken into custody by the military authorities under a warrant authorized by the Secretary of War, who was his enemy of the United States. He was my grandfather on my dad's side. To hear more stories about Japanese America, you can listen to this podcast anywhere you normally download your podcast. In 304 BCE, Demetrius decided to change his tactics, and he started to focus more on land attacks. He ordered his men to build a siege tower, and this time he made it even bigger than before, and even plated the frame with iron to prevent the enemy from setting it ablaze. It was so tall and massive that it took 3,400 men to move this thing into place. Tunnels were dug from Demetrius's camp under the walls of the city in an attempt to undermine them. However, the Rhodesians learned about these tunnels and started to dig their own tunnels to intercept Demetrius' men. When the two tunnels connected underneath the city walls, the soldiers poured from one tunnel into another and a bloody battle took place in tunnels underneath the city walls. Now after pummeling the same place over and over again, a breach was created in the city walls and Demetrius' army charged through only to find that the city had built a second wall in front of the first wall. And this one they wouldn't be able to get to with their siege towers anymore because they were out of range, without completely clearing away the debris from the first wall. And this pissed off Demetrius, and he was anxious to conquer this city. So he ordered a large raid at night, 
and the mission was successful in breaching the walls. But when thousands of men stormed the city, they made it right into the center at the theater when the resistance came pouring in from every city block. They were armed with their javelins and 18-foot pikes, and they fought desperately to protect their homes in the streets and were successful in killing every one of the, of the invaders. Now, after the failed siege, a letter from Antigonus was sent to Demetrius calling for an end to the siege and for his son to come home. The Rhodesians, a small island state, had just defeated the strongest of Alexander's Diadochi, and they were going to bask in their own glory. The Rhodesians were so proud of themselves that they issued the construction of the Colossus of Rhodes. The Colossus is basically like a Statue of Liberty kind of thing. It's the same size, same metal and color, but with Hermes, the god of the sun, instead of Lady Liberty. Now Demetrius was sent to the city of Athens by a command of his father Antigonus. Athens was, a, was within the jurisdiction of the general of Macedonia, and Athens had been fighting for their freedom from Cassander for the better part of two years now. They had being besieged and barricaded at the port, and were about to capitulate to Cassander when Demetrius landed his ships on the northern coast of Athenian territory, Attica. Cassander was forced to break the siege and ordered a general retreat from Boeotia and back to Macedonia. Athens had managed to escape a complete sacking from Cassander, and on his retreat across the northern mountains of Boeotia, Demetrius caught up with Cassander's army, and they chased them down and hit them from behind until over 6,000 of Cassander's army abandoned their posts and fled for their lives into the mountains. Cassander wasn't just defeated, he was humiliated. In 303 BCE, Demetrius marched his army into the Peloponnese and expelled all of the troops still loyal to Ptolemy and Cassander. This campaign was an outstanding success for Demetrius, and he quickly solidified control over southern Greece. It was at this time that Demetrius marched into Corinth and proclaimed himself king of all the Greeks. This was exactly what Philip II had done, as well as his son Alexander the Great. Demetrius now controlled all of southern Greece, Cyprus, all of Anatolia, Syria, and northern Mesopotamia, as well as Judea and Gaza. In 302 BCE, the only remaining Diadochi in Europe were Cassander in Macedonia and Lysimachus in Thrace. Knowing that Demetrius would be attacking him first, Cassander went to Lysimachus and formed an alliance. They sent envoys to both Seleucus in Babylon and Ptolemy in Egypt, and finally the opposition to Antigonus was created. However, Seleucus was far away on campaign in India at the time, and it took a lot longer for the messenger to get to and from him. Seleucus controlled all of the eastern provinces of Alexander's army and was expanding further into India. After two years of campaigning in India, he was defeated by the Myra Empire. A peace treaty was signed and Seleucus' daughter married the king of the Marian Empire in exchange for 500 war elephants. These elephants were going to play a significant role in the battle to come. In a surprise attack, Cassander sent an army across the Bosphorus and invaded Anatolia conquering half of western Anatolia before word of the invasion made it to Antigonus in Syria. Even though he was more than 80 years old, Antigonus led his army west to confront the invading armies. However, winter came quick, and the mountains were filled with snow, forcing each army back to their cities, where they bunkered down for the winter. Meanwhile, 500 war elephants, 
commanded by Seleucus himself, marched across all of Mesopotamia and crossed into Anatolia. These elephants marched through the mountains in the winter before they crossed into Anatolia and met up with Lysimachus' army, now completely outnumbering Antigonus and his army. In 301 BCE, Demetrius sailed from Greece to Anatolia to engage in a final showdown. When the winter ended and the two large armies finally faced off, Seleucus decided it would be best if he hid his war elephants in the rear so Antigonus could not see them. When the battle started and the two phalanxes marched together, the archers started to fire at each other. Demetrius led a cavalry charge against the enemy cavalry, and he chased them deep behind the enemy line and defeated the left flank of Seleucus's army. Now Antigonus's army was superior, and his phalanx started to push back on the Seleucid phalanx, but very quickly they started to reach a stalemate. Now Demetrius defeated the cavalry, but he was pretty far behind enemy lines at this point. So when he turned around to come back to join the main forces of his army and defeat the enemy from flanking the side of their phalanx, he was intercepted by 300 of Seleucus's war elephants. Now these war elephants literally stood between him and his father's army, preventing him from coming to his aid. Now with both Antigonus's phalanx and cavalry contained, Seleucus sent his reserve cavalry charging behind the enemy lines, protected between the war elephants and his phalanx. He managed to get right behind Antigonus's flank and they just massacred Antigonus's infantry. There was no one to defend them and all phalanxes are vulnerable on their side and without Demetrius to come back and protect the right flank, Seleucus and his cavalry swept right through the entire phalanx and Antigonus fought to the very end. He was finally killed in battle by being speared with a javelin. He was over 80 years old and he came the closest to taking over the entire empire. He had his heir in place, everything was set up, but it was at this battle where he was killed and defeated that they lost all chances of finally claiming the empire for their own. Antigonus died on the battlefield and Demetrius returned home. In 298 BCE, Demetrius retreated to the Peloponnese and fortified his control over southern Greece. However, the entire Asian territories held by his father Antigonus were divided among Ptolemy, Seleucus, and Lysimachus. Now there were only three superpowers, as Cassander remained in control of Macedonia and never gained any territory from the defeat of Antigonus, except now Demetrius was in southern Greece. In 297 BCE, Cassander died and left his two sons in charge of the Macedonian kingdom, Alexander and Antipater. Their mother's name was Thessalonica, and she favored her son Alexander and decided to give him more land than his brother. Antipater did not like this decision and murdered his mother, Thessalonica. In 294 BCE, Demetrius marched north from Athens and killed Alexander and defeated his army and chased his brother Antipater out of Macedonia. Demetrius proclaimed himself king of Macedonia and the people accepted after they heard about his family's commitment to Alexander's empire while Cassander's family conspired to destroy it in order to carve out a little chunk for themselves. The people rallied behind Demetrius and he became the ruler of all mainland Greece except for Sparta and Epirus, a small kingdom on the northwest border of Greece. Epirus had always been a small kingdom that never really fell to any of the Diadochi, and now Demetrius was set to incorporate it into his growing empire. However, Epirus and his prince Pyrrhus have such a prominent role to play, they will need their entire episode, as it is in the actions of Paris that will bring on the wrath of the Romans. 
Well, that's it for today. Join us next time on the history of modern Greece. See you next time. Stay safe and stay awesome.